teaching. The teaching today is going to be based off of John chapter 1, verses 19 through 51. And I've asked Christina if she'd come on up here and if she would read through this uh, passage for us. If you don't know Christina, this is Christina. Everybody say hi. All right. Come on up. And say congratulations. Mid- Mid-March, we're going to have a new little Morrison. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thanks. Thanks, Christina. There's been a lot of talk and a lot of conversation among our leadership team uh, lately about why our church exists. What's the point of all of this? Why are we here? How do we gauge whether or not we're healthy? How do we gauge whether or not we're efficient? Um, what, what are we all about and where are we headed? Um, the conversation continues. The prayer continues. But can, I, think it would be very, I think it would be safe for me to make this statement. I think when you strip it all down, when you simplify it all, I think, I think our church exists, very simply, to glorify God by making disciples. We, we exist to honor God by making disciples. Okay? We'll eventually put it into very elaborate mission statements and we'll come up with all kinds of elaborate goals and strategies, right? Because that's what we like to do. But the reality is if you boil it all down, that's what it comes down to. We're about making disciples for the glory of God. Making disciples. That means that every person who's in this room and every person that calls Twin Oaks home, our goal is that you would be a disciple of Jesus Christ who then in turn makes other disciples. That's our goal. That's what we're after. Um. But again, that's, that's easy to say, but the question is, what does that even mean? And that's what the prayer and conversation among the elders is, is what, what does that look like today? Well, as I was studying through this passage, these 30-some verses, I know that's covered a lot of territory, but as, we, as I studied through this passage this week, I found some very important statements about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to point out three things to you in, this, in these verses. Number one, the character of a disciple. Second, the actions of of a disciple. And third, we see how do you become a disciple, okay? What, what, is, what is the character of a disciple? What are the actions of a disciple? And how do we become a disciple of Jesus Christ? So let's look first at the character of a disciple. Now, a disciple of Jesus Christ, hear me, is marked by confidence and humility. Confidence and humility. We all probably know a lot of people that have one of those in spades, right? It's, it's rare to find somebody who has both confidence, courage, boldness, assurance, and humility. Um, the gospel, again, these words collide with another, but the gospel enables you to have both confidence and humility. There's no better example for us to look at, probably apart from Jesus Christ. There's no better person for us to look at as an example than John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, who we, who we looked at in the first few verses of, of John 1 here, he had... He had quite a few reasons just to get a little cocky, didn't he? Um, if you know the story of John the Baptist, uh, John's, John's life and ministry was, uh, was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. If your birth and your life is prophesied about hundreds of years earlier, that's kind of a big deal, right? Okay. J- John's birth was heralded by an angel. An angel came to his folks and said, you're going to have a son and here's what he's going to be and here's what he's going to do. That's, that's kind of a big deal. All right? His teaching, his life was so profound, so influential that people from all over the countryside came out to the wilderness to see him and to listen to him and to sit under his teaching. That's kind of a big deal. Jesus Christ would eventually say about John the Baptist, Jesus Christ would say, there was no greater man that lived on the planet than John. If Jesus Christ says that about you, I don't think it gets any better than that, right? John had a little, he had a few reasons to get a little cocky, didn't he? Okay, but one of John's core attributes was his humility. As, as John's ministry started growing and more and more people started flooding out to get to hear this, 
interesting guy who was, you know, the fur coats and all that and eating locusts and honey and all. As, as more and more people came out to see him, his ministry started growing more influential. Uh, the religious leaders sent people out to go and figure out what all the hoopla was about, what all the hubbub was about, okay? So they sent people out and they said, these religious leaders came out and said, uh, so who do you think you are? Do you think you're the Christ? And John the Baptist very clearly said, it says that he confessed, he did not deny, he confessed freely, is what it says. I am not. No, I'm not. I'm not the Christ. They said, well, then do you think you're Elijah? The Elijah that's been promised to come? No, I'm not Elijah. Okay, then you're a prophet. And John says, no, 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 don't even, don't even give me that status. I'm not even a prophet. He says, I am not, I am not, I am not. And then they say, well, then who are you? Because you're obviously not just some random Joe who came out with some interesting teaching. Because look, look at the response. You can't just be some random guy. Who are you? What are you? And John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. Don't give me titles. This isn't about me. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm nobody. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the path of the Lord. And here's why he said that. Uh, in John's day, there were no freeways. In John's day, there were no superhighways. There were no paved roads. And so what would happen is if a king were to leave his city and to go out into some of the surrounding towns, especially out in the rural areas, to go visit their peasants, okay? If a king were to go out into the, some of the surrounding towns, he would send out a herald ahead of him. And the herald would run out and he'd say, the king is coming, the king is coming, get ready, the king is coming. Make straight the path for the king. Make ready the way for the king. And so what they would do is the people would come out from the towns and they'd go to the roads and they would fill in all the potholes and they'd get rid of any brush and they'd remove any debris, anything that would stand in the way of the king coming into their town. Okay, That was the herald's job, was to go out and alert the people. So what John is saying, he's saying, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not a prophet. Give me any of those titles. I'm a nobody. I'm just the, I'm just the guy running ahead saying, get ready, he's coming. He's coming. Get ready. Salvation is on his way. Anything that would stand in the way of you seeing Jesus for who he is, anything that would stand in the way of you experiencing the king, seeing the king, get rid of it. Fill in those potholes. Get rid of the debris. And that, when I think he's talking about, I think he's talking about stubbornness. I think he's talking about ignorance for your need for a savior. Get rid of it recognize your need for a savior. He's coming. Salvation is on his way. So on one hand, John has this tremendous humility. He says, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Don't give me glory. I'm just a voice. And yet on the other hand, John has this, you know, he says, I'm, I'm a nobody. But he's, on this other hand, he's got this tremendous confidence and assurance about who he is. What you're going to see as you learn about John the Baptist's life is that he has he, the way he approaches the, the elites of the day, the, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the military leaders, he, he rebukes them publicly to their face, okay? Um, that actually would end up costing him his life. Eventually, he's going to tell Herod, who's the ruler of that area, hey, it's not right for you to steal your brother's wife like that. Herod took his brother's wife, married her because he wanted her. And, and, and John the Baptist publicly said, that's not right for you to do that. You need to repent of that and make, make that right. Herod didn't like that, put John in jail, and eventually chopped off his head. Eventually it cost him his life. John had this tremendous confidence and boldness and courage. So you've got these two extremes, confidence, humility. The gospel, I, t I told you, gives you both. On one hand, John says, I'm nobody, I'm just a voice. He actually goes so far as to say, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who comes after me. That's John's way of saying, I am not even worthy to be a slave to the one who will come after me. I'm not even worthy to work for him for free. I can't even volunteer in the kingdom. Okay? I'm not worthy to even be a slave. And again, if, if maybe this is your first time hearing that comment, or you've, you've, maybe the first time you read that, you think, man, John's got some self-esteem issues. 
What kind of childhood trauma did this guy endure? But look, John just recognized his lowness in comparison to Jesus' greatness and the vast expanse between the two. Tim Keller says this. He says, there are two ways that you can say, I am unworthy. You can say, I am unworthy and mean, I despise and I dislike myself. Or you can say, I am unworthy and mean, I am freed from and I forget myself. One is destructive. The other is healthy Christian humility. Okay, look. Actually, by the way, Keller, Tim Keller actually published a little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's just this tiny little booklet. I think it's based off of a sermon, or sermon series that he did. But it, it's this really profound book. And, and, and what it does is it's a brief look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul, Paul says, Paul essentially says, I think it's up here. Paul essentially says, he says, um, it, it matters very little to me uh, to be judged by you or by any human court. Okay? I, frankly, I don't care what you say about me, is, is essentially what he says. I don't care what you think about me. Um, and then he goes on to say, in fact, I don't even really judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Think about, how, if you can get this, this will change how you live every day. I, I don't care what you say about me. I don't even really care what I think about me. I only care what God thinks about me. That's what really matters. So, Keller goes on in this little book that he goes on to break that down, and he says there are three things that can drive you forward in life. What others think about you, what you think about you, or what God thinks about you. Um, when Paul says here, he says in the, in the beginning of that statement, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. What he's doing is he is just tearing down any possibility of an inferiority complex. An inferiority complex, you know, I know you know people who have these. A person with an inferiority complex is somebody who looks humble— right? Looks humble on the outside, but is actually pretty self-centered. The person looks humble because they're always saying stuff like, oh man, I'm so bad. I'm such a mess. I'm such a failure. Nobody likes me. I don't even really like me. On the outside, that looks really humble, right? On the outside, that looks humble, but the reality is, uh, again, it's self-centered. The reason you feel so bad about yourself is because you're constantly comparing yourself to others all the time. You're always looking at yourself. You're always obsessed with your own needs, your own problems, what people think of you, and whether or not you're living up to what others expect of you. And I think in our culture, we kind of get that, right? We think, okay, I shouldn't be enslaved by what others think about me. I'm constantly feeling inferior to what others, you know, do they like my shirt? Do they approve of my parenting? Am I a good enough person? So on and so forth. We get we should not be enslaved by other people's opinions of us. So then what's the answer? What's the answer that you're going to get in our culture today, in our time today, they're going to tell you, well, don't worry about what they think. What really matters is what you think. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Right? That's the answer you're going to get. Be true to you. Don't worry about what other, other people think. It's just what you think. But look, if, that is what, if that's the, the, the mode that you go, you're doing what Paul refused to do. Because what, Paul refused to heal an inferiority complex with a superiority complex. What, what, when, you, when you come and you say, uh, I, don't, I don't care what anybody else thinks, I don't care what my family thinks, I don't care what history thinks, I don't care what culture thinks, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm only going to care about what I think, you have to see, and we're not getting into this, we're just grazing over this, but you have to understand that's going to cripple you too, because what that's going to do is it's going to create condescension, it's going to create arrogance, it's going to create pride, it's going to create the superiority of what everybody else says and thinks. Here is what Paul says is the answer. Paul says, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. I only care what God thinks. That's the answer. 
I only care what God thinks. And what does God think? I'm not judged by you. I'm not judged by myself. I'm judged by God. And guys, guess what? The verdict is in. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God says, if you come to me on the basis of what Jesus has done, I will accept you into my family. You will be a child of God. Not based on what you have done, but based on what Jesus has done. So all of Jesus' perfection and his beauty and his worth now is transferred to you. That's the gospel. So you have to see, I am now loved and cherished by God with the same passion and steadfastness that he loves and cherishes Jesus. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel yet. That's the reality. When God sees me, he sees the beauty and and the worth of Jesus. He took on my sin. I took on his righteousness. That's, That's what the gospel is. There are three ways in which you can be driven in your life. You can be driven by other people's evaluation of you. You can be driven by your evaluation of you. Or you can be driven by what God says about you. And the reason why John the Baptist can say, I'm unworthy... And then turn around and speak with such boldness and assurance is because he has neither an inferiority complex nor a superiority complex. He can say, I know how unworthy I am, but you can't judge me. I don't even judge me. It's God who judges me, and I know what he says about me because of Jesus. Do you follow me? I know I'm kind of all over the place here. Stay with me. I told you guys last week, the gospel message does not mean that you think less of yourself, nor does it mean you think more of yourself. You get to think of yourself less. That's what the gospel does. John can say, I am not, I am not, I am not. I'm just a voice. I'm not worthy of him. I'm not even worthy to be a slave. He must increase, I must decrease. And yet at the very same moment, he's able to say, I I have have experienced completion of joy. My joy is made complete. He said that. He said, he must increase, I must decrease, but my joy is made complete. He experienced fullness of joy. He experienced the abundant life to be A disciple of Jesus Christ must start with being driven, not by the voices of the world, not by the voices inside your own heart or head, but by the voice of God. The gospel gives you humility and courage. Jesus had to die for you. Okay, that's the only way. That should humble you to the ground. It was beyond you. That should humble you. But but Jesus was glad to die for you. That should give you confidence and assurance and courage. The gospel humbles you and it gives you confidence and courage that's the character of a disciple second we look at the actions of a disciple are you still with me all right first a disciple i'm gonna give you two two actions of a disciple first a disciple follows a disciple follows the word disciple again simply means student okay it's a student but we're not talking about we're not talking about four or five classes 16 credit hours we're talking 24 7 life on life Becoming a disciple of a rabbi means that you leave everything. You leave everything and you live with your rabbi, your teacher. Jesus did not tell Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel and Peter to come and attend classes for a few hours a week. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. To follow somebody means you actually have to leave where you're standing and move forward. You have to actually leave the spot you are in. Becoming a disciple of Jesus, it's impossible, it's impossible for you to be a disciple of Jesus and for nothing to change. You, you can't be a disciple of Jesus and stay right where you are. You're missing the point. You're not a disciple yet. When Jesus says, 
follow me, he's saying everything is going to change. Your relationship is going to change. Your job is going to change. Your priorities will change. Your values will change. Your standards will change. Follow me means that Jesus, hear me, is Jesus is now your new center of gravity. Everything in your life is now being pulled towards your new center of gravity. Okay? You're no longer, he's become, he's become the new center of your system. So you're no longer revolving around other things or revolving around yourself. You're now revol- your whole life now revolves around him. He's the center of your system. Does that make sense? This so contradicts what's normal in our church today, though. Typically in, in, in the church, you, you pray the sinner's prayer, pray the simple prayer. And then from that point forward, we now see God as our personal assistant. Okay? We may not say it consciously, but subconsciously, that's how most often... Many of us will live. We'll pray a prayer and then we'll say, but okay, now God, um, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to, you know, thanks for the forgiveness and everything, that was, that was great, um, but I don't, want to, I don't have to deal with you every day. I mean, after all, I mean, we don't want to get legalistic, right? We don't want to get legalistic about it. So I don't want, I don't want to have to deal with you every day. Um, but listen, uh, there are going <laughs> to be some times where I'm going to need some stuff. So when I need some cash, I'm going to need you to pick up the phone. When, 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 I need, when I get sick, you've got to make sure to be there. I'm going to need you to be around when I need you. I don't want to re- revolve my whole life around you, but when I need you, you better be there. But I've heard it illustrated like this. If the entire distance between the earth and the sun, anybody know the distance? Very good. Nice job, Jay. I had to look it up. 93 million miles. Uh, if 93 million miles. If you could put 93 million miles... You could turn that into the, the, the thickness of a single sheet of paper, okay, the ratio, right? If 93 million miles is to one sheet of paper, then the distance from us to the nearest star, um, let me get my, I want to make sure I got these numbers right, to the next, the next nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high, okay? The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Okay, we know the Milky Way is but a speck of dust in the known universe, a speck of dust in the vast expanse of our universe. John 1 told us that anything that was created was created through Jesus. That includes the vast expanse of our universe. The Bible tells us that Jesus holds together the universe with the word of his power. Now, is that the kind of person that you invite into your life to be your assistant? The one who, put, who created all of this and holds it all together, sustains it all together. Is that the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? No. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> no, that's the kind of person that you come to with respect and reverence and awe and you fall at his feet and you offer him everything. You beg him for the chance to be his assistant. You beg him for the chance to be able to know him and to serve him and to enjoy him. You, Jesus calls you Jesus calls you into a life of submission. You offer him every ounce of your being, every ounce, every breath you take belongs to him. He's calling you to a life of obedience. And David Nelms, who was here a couple weeks ago, mentioned this. Um, the Great Commission says we are to go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. But often how we read that is go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Stop. Okay? Um, as disciples, as many of you are, oftentimes we, we think of the Great Commission as that. So we think our responsibility now is to c- come 
and listen to teaching every single week. Okay, but the point of the teaching is that so you would know to learn to obey. It would move you to obey. It would move you to actually act. If what I'm sharing up here each week is not changing how you think, how you act, how you dream, how you hope, how you live, then we're simply wasting our time, right? We're wasting our time. We're not just doing this to get more wrinkles in our brain. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. We're not here to puff ourselves up. The Bible says that we, 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 are, we are to study the Bible and put it into practice. Psalm 1, I encourage you to read this this week. Psalm 1 says, if you want to be a godly man and you want to bear fruit, which I'm pretty sure most of you in here, if you want to be a godly man or a godly woman and you want to bear fruit, you know how to do it? Psalm 1 tells you. Meditate on the law, God's word, the scriptures, day and night is what it says. And when he says meditate on the law, meditate on God's word day and night, he's not just talking about think about it. He's not even just saying read it over and over. He's saying let it permeate you. Let it sift through you, undo you. We don't just read the scriptures. The scriptures read us. We, we have to act on it. Okay? We have to let it permeate us, and then we, then we put it into action. The scriptures are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's my challenge to you. Very, very simple, very practical. Here we go. When you open up your Bible tomorrow morning to read, when you open up your Bible tomorrow, whenever you read your Bible, uh, I hope that you'll open it up tomorrow, and you'll, you'll, before you start reading, would you just start with a simple prayer? And this is what I try to do before I, before I read each time. I say, God, you know my day a whole lot better than I do. You know the conversations I'm going to have. You know the temptations I'm going to face. You know the opportunities are going to come my way. Would you please show me what I need to know? Would you please speak to me? Speak whatever, whatever I need to hear today. Would you please show me and, and help me to live to honor your name and to be a blessing to those that I come into contact with? And then I read my Bible. And then... And you close it, and before you just then go off to do whatever else you're going to do for that day, would you take just a moment, take a minute, take two minutes, and pray through it, and would you consider, God, I've just read that, how are you wanting me to put that into action? How do you want me to, to, to live out what I've just read? Very simple exercise. Do this tomorrow. The end goal is not just knowledge about the gospel. The end goal is obedience motivated by the gospel. Hear me? The end goal is not knowledge about the gospel. It's obedience motivated by the gospel. Jesus did not just say, hey, come learn about me. He said, come follow me. Follow implies obedience. As we get into the gospel of John, we're going to see that there are a lot of people who just hang around, hung around Jesus and listened to him and watched his miracles. But if they stuck around for any length of time, Jesus was going to issue the call to discipleship. He was going to say, come follow me. Drop this that's holding you back. Drop this that's holding you back. Come follow me. Give me everything. And then person after person after person after person would, would, would look at the cause and say too much and they'd walk away. Here's the reason why. Being an admirer of Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Being a fan of Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Um, please consider, is it possible that you are simply a fan of Jesus? Somebody who hangs around him uh, you find him interesting to listen to. You find him interesting to talk about and to sing about. It's an interesting way to spend your Sunday mornings. But you've never answered the call to discipleship. A Christian disciple is somebody who says all other pursuits are secondary. Everything else is secondary. To serve, to know, to enjoy, to obey Jesus, that is my primary pursuit. Primary pursuit. It's... It is, is, follow, is knowing and serving and obeying Jesus your primary pursuit? 
Um, if you want to know, if you think, well, I, I don't know. Um, if you want to know if you're living with Jesus as your primary pursuit, may I, may I offer you a suggestion? Ask people who are close to you. Um, I've, I've suggested this to this. I've suggested this to you before. You want some honesty? Ask your kids. If you have some kids who are, who are old enough to understand the question, to say, hey, what, what does daddy care about more than anything else in all the world? I've asked my son that twice. I'm 50%. Right? <laughs> I guess certain seasons of my life, whatever. First time I asked him, he said, Jesus. I said, yes. <laughs> Second time, he said, me, as in him. Um, now listen, hold on. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your family. I'm not, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be a pursuit to love your family well, but here's the deal. The better I'm able to love Jesus, the better I'm able to love my family. When I place Jesus first, I'm able to, to, to love well my wife and my kids. But if your primary pursuit is, is to exalt your family first, you're not going to love them well or Jesus well. Um, ask your kids. Ask those around you. Consider, just, just consider, is my primary pursuit to know and to enjoy and to obey Jesus. Let me say one last thing before I move to our next point. There are probably somebody in here who is not a disciple of Jesus, and you're thinking, you're thinking, are you, you want me to revolve everything around Jesus. You want my, you're saying complete obedience, complete submission. Uh, that sounds a little bit oppressive. If you're honest, that sounds a little oppressive. What if he asks me to do something that I don't want to do? What if he asks me to move somewhere I don't want to move? What if he asks me to give up something that I don't want to give up? Okay, he will. That's the reality. He will. Of course he's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do. I've, I've, I've heard it said that the, the only relationship in our modern day times that, that parallels well the relationship of, of that uh, of, between a rabbi and a disciple is that of an athlete and a coach. Okay, imagine for a second if a coach uh, comes, you know, takes a trip down and he's going to sign a kid into a football scholarship. And he comes down and he's sitting in the kid's dining room and the contract's on the table and the kid's got the pen in hand and he's just about to sign him. And the kid says, uh, the young man says, um, you know, looks up and says, Coach, and I'm, I'm just so excited about playing in your program. I've, I've just dreamed about this day. Um, I'm so excited to sign this paper. Hey, but um, just listen. Um, could you just make sure not to ask me to do anything too hard or uncomfortable? Um, could you just, I, I'm, totally, I'm going to sign this paper right now, but could you just make sure that you don't ask me to do anything that I don't want to do? What would that coach say? He'd probably pick up that contract and rip it up, right? No, he, he probably looked down at the kid and said, are you kidding? I thought you wanted to be a great ball player. I thought you wanted to play great football. Of course I'm going to ask you to do things. Of course I'm going to train you into the ground. I'm going to ask you to do things every single day that you don't want to do. But I'm your coach, and if you would trust me, if you would give me your heart, your mind, your body. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you to do stuff that's hard and that's uncomfortable and that you don't want to do. But I will help you to become everything that you can possibly be as a football player. It's the very same thing with God. It's the very same thing with Jesus. Jesus says, he says, if you are truly my disciples, you will obey my truth and the truth will set you free. Do you guys see the paradox there? Jesus says, if you submit, you'll be free. If you obey me, you'll, 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 you'll be free. If you set aside your desires, you'll experience fullness of joy, the abundant life. Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A disciple follows. Secondly, a disciple reproduces. This is something that really struck me as I was reading through these uh, 30 verses. John the Baptist 
Again, sees Jesus coming towards him. He cries out, Jesus, or he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, behold, the Lamb. Two of his disciples hear him say that. Andrew, and then another disciple that's not named. Most scholars think that it's actually John, the writer of the gospel that we're reading. Okay? Andrew and John. Here, John, John the Baptist say, behold, the Lamb. They leave John, and they go and follow Jesus. And what do Andrew and John immediately do? They then go and turn, and they tell Andrew's brother, Peter. Okay, so John the Baptist says, behold the lamb, then Andrew and John go out and become disciples, and then Andrew and John go out, and they help Peter become a disciple. You see the same thing uh, later on in the chapter. Jesus tells Philip, he says, come follow me. Philip realizes who Jesus is, and then Philip, in turn, immediately goes and tells Nathaniel. says, come and see, we found the Messiah. There's, there's immediate multiplication. There's immediate reproduction as disciples. Um, there, this, I noticed something this week. I'm, I've been reading through the first couple chapters of Luke getting ready for our Christmas Eve service on Tuesday. And I read through the story of John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. If you guys remember the story, Zechariah and Elizabeth, right, the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah is a priest, and he was in the temple serving, ministering to the, ministering to the Lord, and then an angel shows up and then you know, tells Zechariah, hey, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the forerunner to Jesus. Um, he got very specific instructions from uh, the angel on how to raise his son, John. Gabriel looks Zechariah in the eye and says, your son has an important role to play in this world. He's got a very important role to play. It's your job, Zechariah, for you and Elizabeth to raise him well, to prepare him to honor God with his life. Here's how you do it. He gives very specific instructions. Okay? Uh, John became the man. John the Baptist became the man he was, partly anyway. Because of the faithfulness and the investment of his parents. Zechariah and Elizabeth took seriously the commands that they were given by God through the angel on how to raise their child. And prepared him to be the man that he was and to do the things that he did. As a father of three children, I was reminded in that story that it is just as important for me to disciple the, my three children as it is to raise up three disciples from this adult congregation. My children, I have, it's just as great of a responsibility and a privilege for me to raise up my own children as it is to raise up anybody from in here. Um, so can I just say a word to you parents and to all you future parents? I'm especially going to pinpoint you dads and you future dads. May I, may I just issue this quick little reminder here? Um, Ultimately, the spiritual health and well-being of your family, the flourishing spiritually, uh, the health and well-being of your family is not primarily my responsibility. It's yours. You are the pastor of your home, not me. You are the pastor of your home. Don't keep looking to, to Joe Newton or to me or to the elder team as being the primary spiritual influences in your home. That's your job. It's your job to teach your kids how to pray. It's not my job. It's your job. It's your job to teach your kids how to understand the scriptures. Now, it's our joy uh, to come alongside and to support you and to help encourage you and, and to be able to equip you to be able to do that. But ultimately, it's your responsibility, not mine. It, you disagree with me if you want, but if I, I believe Ephesians chapter 5 implies that one day, dads, you're going to have to present your family back to the Lord. You've been gifted with that family. God, God gave you that, 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 those, that wife and those, those kids as a gift. 
I believe Ephesians 5 implies that one day you're going to have to present that family back to the Lord. If, and if you want your family to flourish, to walk closely with God and walk closely with one another, it's going to take intentionality. It's going to take a whole lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of discipline. It's going to take a lot of prayer. And it's going to take a lot of encouragement. This is why we're here together today. But take seriously, again, this is, you are the pastor of your home. Stop look, putting it on the shoulders of Joe to teach your kids how to pray and read the Bible. He's there to support you, not to do it for you. The Great Commission starts in our home. So here's my commission to you, parents. Go home, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. Go home, make disciples, baptize, and teach to obey. Two weeks ago, we announced a partnership with a church planning movement called the Timothy Initiative. We've been raising, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been raising funds to support TTI's first church planner training center in Vietnam. I told you guys that Jess and I were, were with the organization early on, and so we, and we helped to name uh, TTI. And so we called it the Timothy Initiative because it's based off of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says this. Paul is talking to his young disciple, Timothy. And Paul says, he says, uh, the things that uh, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who can teach others also. Who will be able to teach others also. Okay? So think about that statement for a second. Paul is speaking to Timothy. He says, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who can teach others also. There's four generations uh, present in that statement. There's Paul... Who, you know, who teaches the things in the presence of many witnesses to Timothy, who has now been instructed to take those things and to give them to reliable men who can teach others also. Four different generations in that one statement. This is what it's all about. We're talking about disciples making disciples. This is what it's all about. We can no longer determine the health and the effectiveness of our church by whether or not our, our bank, account, bank account is large. Or whether or not we own our own building. Or, or whether or not, uh, you know, our services are polished. Whether or not Philip finishes his sermons on time. Okay? We'd be in a lot of trouble. But we, we determine our health and our effectiveness and our success as a church by whether or not we're, we're making disciples who make disciples. Amen? All right. That's why we're here. And if this text tells us anything, it says that what, this is what has been happening for centuries and centuries. Disciples making disciples. I told you, Zechariah and Elizabeth helped John, their son John, become a disciple. John said, behold the lamb. And his, uh, his, Andrew and John became disciples. Andrew and John then went to Peter. And Peter became a disciple. Four generations. We're told that after Jesus dies and rises again from the dead, he ascends up into heaven, and that Peter and about 120 other disciples are sitting in a room in Jerusalem praying. And the, the, the Holy Spirit drops. Peter goes out on Pentecost. He preaches. And thousands, 3,000 are added to their number that day. 3,000 disciples are made. And then within a short period of time, persecution ends up springing up. People start trying to put this movement to death. And so the, the disciples are scattered uh, all around. And with, we're told that historians tell us within a few hundred years, over 50% of the Roman world follows Jesus. Over 50%. Okay? That's incredible multiplication. Unbelievable reproduction. You and I sit here today as beneficiaries of people who have gone before us, who have been faithful to the Great Commission, who have, who have gone, made disciples, baptized, and taught to obey. We are beneficiaries of that, and now it's our turn. God help us if all we do is raise some money and we send it out to Vietnam to make disciples over there, pat ourselves on the back, and sit down. God help us if that's, if that's our game plan, okay? There is just as much need here in San Jose as there is in North Vietnam. There is as much spiritual poverty here 
as anywhere else in the world. You and I today have been given the command, go make disciples. This command was not just given to, to people like me, full-time pastors. This commission was not given as a suggestion. There's no, there's no, you don't find the word please in the Great Commission. It's not like, well, here's an idea. You know, here's option A. You can go and maybe try this. No, Jesus commands it. He says, go, go, do it. It's a command. Let's get at it. Charles Spurgeon said, again, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. A disciple follows and a disciple reproduces. Now I move to our last point here. Um, you may be here today, and uh, all you, you know, you just hear me yell at everybody all the time, and you're still not understanding it all. Um, you're still investigating the claims of Jesus. You're still trying to wrestle through um, what this is all about. First off, let me tell you this before I say anything else. Number one, you are welcome here. This is a great place to investigate. This is a great place to ask your questions and to wrestle through any doubts you might have. This is a great place. Disagree with me. Let's have conversations. This is, I'm, I'm so, if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here because there is no more important question to ask, but is Jesus actually God? Because if he is, that changes everything. And if he's not, that changes everything. It's a very important question to wrestle through. So you are welcome here. But perhaps you are here today and you're ready to take that step to follow Jesus. Um, let me explain to you as we finish up here, how you become a disciple. How do we become a disciple of Jesus? John the Baptist said it early on in our, in our text today. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how you become a disciple. Behold the Lamb of God. You find forgiveness and new life through what Jesus did on the cross. Here's the reality. This is what the Bible teaches, and I think this is what experience will teach us too, that everybody in this room is a sinner. Um, we haven't just made some mistakes that we have actually rebelled against God. We have said, God, I know how you want me to live my life. I choose to live it this way. We've rebelled. Everybody is a sinner, and everybody is deserving of God's wrath. Justice tells us that we deserve, uh, justice tells the wages of sin, the, 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 the result of our sin, the reward for our sin is death, separation from God for eternity. That, that's, that's, and, and compared to the holiness and the purity and the majesty of God here, and our brokenness and our crimes here. We deserve death, separation from God forever. And the only way to have your sins taken away, the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to cover this expanse here, it's not through, please hear me, if you don't hear anything else, please at least hear this, it's not through a bunch of hard work. We've talked about a lot of hard work today, but it's not about cleaning up your life. If you want to find forgiveness and new life, you don't start by trying to Fix yourself up and polish yourself. We told you a dirty hand can't clean up a mess. You just smear it. Okay? It's not about cleaning up your life first. That comes later. That's fruit, not root. Okay? Courage, confidence, humility, obedience, multiplication, all the things that we've talked about today, that's not the root of your salvation. If you do all that, then it's not like, okay, God likes Now we can be saved. That's not the root of our salvation. That's the fruit of our salvation. To find forgiveness and the ability to live for God starts by receiving Jesus as the Lamb of God. When we refer to Jesus as the Lamb, that's a little confusing. Like, I don't get it. He's you know, a cute little furry animal. What does that mean? When we refer to Jesus as the Lamb, we're saying that Jesus is our substitute. He's our substitute. It, it really helps if you had kind of an understanding of the Old Testament. But just very quickly, what you're going to see is all throughout the Old Testament, you're going you're to see this picture painted by God. 
Okay, picture's pointing us to Jesus. You're going to see Abel right in the very beginning of Genesis who offers a sacrifice to God and God finds it acceptable. You're going to see um, God speaking to Abraham later in Genesis where God says, Abraham, I want you to go take your son up the mountain and I want you to kill him. Remember that? And Abraham doesn't understand. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem to line up with God's character. It doesn't seem to line up with God's plan. I don't understand why he'd ask me to do that, but Abraham obeys. And so he starts taking, you know, heavy-hearted. He walks up the mountainside taking his son. And his son Isaac, who is walking up with his dad, he said, Dad, I don't get it. We've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And remember what, what Abraham says. He says, God, he said, he says, son, God will provide the lamb. And he did, didn't he? He provided a substitute. They get up to the top. God stops him. And there's an animal stuck in the bush. And he said, there. God provided a substitute. And Isaac didn't have to die. Okay? You, you go on hundreds of years later. Israel is enslaved by Egypt. And, and, and God is bringing Israel, Israel out through a bunch of plagues. And God says, I'm going to send my angel of death. And I'm going to take the firstborn son of every home. And he says but to the Israelites, he said, but listen, if you will take a lamb and you will sacrifice him, you will kill the lamb. And you were to take his blood and you were to put it on the door. The angel of death will pass over your home and you won't be harmed. That's what the Jewish feast of Passover, that's what they're celebrating. When the angel has passed over because of the blood of the lamb. Again, there's the message. It's right there. If a lamb is sacrificed, that can be the substitute and you can live. If the lamb dies, you can have life. Hundreds of, of years go by, centuries go by, and this, this same message is, is given over and over and over and over. The message of substitution. Isaiah 53 will, will eventually say, There will be someday somebody who will come uh, through whose stripes we will be healed, that all of our iniquity, all of our sin will be placed on him, and he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he will take the punishment for those sins. Okay, hundreds of years, this picture is painted in the Old Testament. And then John the Baptist shows up. Jesus walks out onto the scene, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. He didn't say, Behold a Lamb of God. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, everything in the Old Testament, all of these pictures that has been painted, it's all been pointing us to the sacrifice, the real sacrifice. Hebrews actually goes on to tell us that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and all this, that doesn't, God didn't desire that. That didn't mean anything. What it all pointed to was Jesus, the real, true sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And because of this substitution, Jesus dying in our place, experiencing the punishment that we deserved, we can be forgiven. We can have life. We can have a relationship with God through Jesus. That's why it's so fascinating. You guys see at the very end of that text? I know it's a long text. You see right at the very end? Jesus tells, tells Nathaniel, he says, if you have faith in me, you will, see that the, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You remember when he said that? It's kind of confusing if you're not familiar with the story in Genesis where Jacob, Jacob is out sleeping out on the ground and he has this dream that there's a ladder that's ascending and descending uh, 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 from, from heaven to earth. Okay, And there are angels of God going up and down the ladder. Jesus here at the end of John 1 says, that's me. The fact that there are angels of God ascending and descending, that's saying that that ladder goes into the very presence of God. Jesus is saying, I'm that ladder. I am the, I am the link between God and man. I am the link between heaven and earth. You want to be in God's very presence? You have to go through me. You see what he's saying? This is what we celebrate at this time of year. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. If you've, uh, if, you've never take, if you've never received Jesus 
as the Lamb of God. If you've never beheld the Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if you've never received forgiveness and new life that God offers through him, I'm inviting you to do that today. Let's pray together.